We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Welcome back to the Eight Black Hands Podcast, and we have a very, very, very special show today. But before I tell you why it's so special, uh, I want to introduce my brothers that are on right now, and that is Sharif. Sharif, wave to the people, say hello. How's it going? That's- Live from the 215. Good to see y'all. There you go. Uh, that is Sharif trying to sound like he's 25. And we have Ray. <laughs> um, Ray, my brother, who was just antagonizing me right before we started. Ray, who looks like he's about to go fishing. Ray, you want to say hi to everybody, brother? What's going on, everybody? Hey, Reef, what what kind of panel is that on your walls, bro? Why is that not drywalled? What's happening oh, down see, there? Bro, it was like this when I got it, and it's staying like this until Listen, I have we got, to change it. We got guests today, gentlemen. We can we oh, sorry, can we not sorry. now this this brother needs no introduction, but I've I spent time looking for introductions for him, so I'm gonna read it. Uh but we're gonna bring him in the right way. Uh Dr. Howard Fuller is a civil rights activist, ed reform advocate, and academic. He's best known for the community organization work he did in Durham, North Carolina as an employee of Operation Breakthrough and as a co-founder of the Malcolm X Liberation University in 1969. Brother, they went back to 1969. Um, in, the, in the 70s, Fuller adopted the name Owusu Sadaukau. I said that so wrong. But Owusu, brother Owusu, he's going to fix it. He's going to fix it. Uh, He organized several national African Liberation Day celebrations and was one of the foremost advocates of pan-Africanism in the United States. Uh, But more importantly, man, everybody on this show and most of the people that I come in contact with love and revere this man. He has been nothing but kind to me. Can we all welcome uh, Dr. Howard Fuller? That's just a nice round of applause for that brother. Dr. Fuller, man, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, my brother. Thank you so much for having me on. Man, thank you so much. It means a ton to us uh, just to even have you. Uh, Before we hop into questions or whatever, man, how would you like to, is there any place special that you want to start or we can just kind of take you in, but we just wanted to, in reverence, give give you the floor to start. No, I just really appreciate the fact uh, that you brothers want to, you know, talk to me. Um, I will correct the, the name for you. Please, please do. Please do. I said I was wrong. But you were close, though, Charles. So Thank you. It's, um, it's a Wusu Sudoke. And, and what it means is um, this, this was a name given to me by the students at uh, Malcolm X Liberation University. So there's a whole lot of people around the United uh, around the world <laughs> that have no idea who Howard Fuller is, but they know who Owusu Sadoke is. Mm-hmm. So Owusu means one uh, who clears the way for others, and Sadoke means one who gathers strength from his ancestors to lead his people. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, for a long time, I, I didn't use my slave name Howard Fuller at all, mm-hmm. and so. So I got these two different lives you know, that, uh, that are out there. But uh, again, I, re- I really appreciate you all having me on. Oh, man. Thank you so much, man. Um, I know that Sharif has a lot of stuff kind of lined up for you. So I'm going to jump to Ray real quick because um, I know just where our respect level is. Ray, what, is there anything you want to say to the good Dr. Fuller before we hop into the show, man? Man, I, f- I first met Dr. Fuller in... Uh 
in Nashville, I think it was, at uh at the charter school conference, National Charter School Conference. And I was starstruck, man. I was so starstruck. That's like he's like the only dude in the history of dudes that I, I took a picture with because, you know, everybody else, I feel like, you know, I'm smarter than and I wow. look better than, you know. Wow. But but this guy right here, man, I needed to have a flick with him. I'm gonna post it after the show. <laughs> That's what's up, man. Uh Sharif, you you go right ahead, brother. And then I want you to jump into uh the, the quote that you have for him, if, you, if you're ready, Sharif, but I'll give you the floor. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm the same with Anchor. I just appreciate the longevity of, of the fight. Um, you know, if we're standing on shoulders like yours and you're standing on shoulders of, you know, of our ancestors uh, even before that, so this long line of, you know, resistance and true resistance, because I remember, you know, the, you know, and freedom fighting, because I remember Randy Weingarten tried to tell you that she was a freedom fighter. And I was just like, wait a minute, that's not the type of freedom fighter I grew up understanding. Um, you know, and so I just appreciate, uh, you know, your work that you've put in and that you'll continue to put in. And I uh, really wanted to start off with this, uh, this quote. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about just, you know, black liberation and education and the role that the differences between uh, desegregation, integration, and segregation, like what, how all of that plays in. Um, so I'm going to read this quote by Dr. Martin Luther King. And I would love just to get your, you know, your response to it. So here's, here's the quote. I favor integration on buses and in all areas of public accommodation and travel. I am for equality. However, I think integration in our public schools is different. In that setting, you are dealing with one of the most important assets of an individual, the mind. White people view black people as inferior. A large percentage of them have a very low opinion of our race. People with such a low view of the black race cannot be given free reign and put in charge of the intellectual care and development of our boys and girls. Now that ain't the Dr. King that white folks be celebrating in January. This is this is a uh, our Dr. King. <laughs> so I would love just to you know your reaction to that and your response and help us just put the, all of this in the context of today's uh, continuous fight for liberation. Yeah, thanks a lot, Shreve. Uh, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I posted a, a quote by uh, Dr. King on my uh, um, you know Twitter site. It was really interesting. I was. I'm reading, you know, this book, Lost Education of Horace Tate. And they start out by talking about a speech that Dr. King gave before the, uh, I forgot what it was called, it was like the Georgia Education Association, I think, which was the Black Education Association in Georgia at that time. And he said, now there are too many Negroes who think of integration merely in aesthetic in romantic terms. We must see integration in political terms where there is shared power. I am not one to integrate myself out of power. And that's a that, that's a, a, a powerful quote and sort of an addendum to what you said, right? Right, right. Because when you actually go back and understand what black people were fighting for, black people were fighting for integration as an aspect of eliminating legal apartheid. But any conscious black person was never fighting to end any semblance of black people having power. And so that's been, you know, so misinterpreted. And so that's why you, you see people like myself and many others who make the distinction between segregation, desegregation, and integration. Because to me, 
segregation is legal apartheid that is promoted by policies and procedures and laws of the state. But it's, it's, it's a very clear, like, we're separating you and we're using state power to separate you. And that separation is a part of a larger notion of your inferiority. That's why it's always important to really read the actual words of the Brown decision, because it begins to give this case that something that is all black is by definition inferior. Then we look at desegregation, that's actually moving the bodies. So for example, the first time I was arrested for, for quote, civil rights was for sitting in at a school board meeting, uh, at a school board uh, building the office in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And what we were protesting the day that I was arrested was intact busing. Because what they were doing is they were taking black children out of their community to Little Italy. But when they got to the school in Little Italy, they were not allowed to be in the classroom with white kids, nor were they allowed to eat in the cafeteria and so forth. So that even though there was, quote, desegregation, the reality was there was no integration because there was no, as Dr. King talked about, shared power. It's just like today when we talk a whole lot about diversity and we talk about diversity in the absence of shared power. So that what does that really mean? It doesn't mean anything right. when it comes down to what our needs are as a people. So um, I, I just think that the more we understand history and we understand it as it relates to today, there's so many things that happened back then that we see happening again in a different form. And so you all are fighting the battles that have to be fought today in the ways that your generation has to fight it. Mm -hmm. But it's not dissimilar to battles that have taken place before. It's just that we're doing it under different historical conditions. So I want to I want to ask a question that kind of tacked on to that, because I'm doing a lot of work here and uh, we got a lot going on with the video feed. It's nice, though. It's like it's it's psychedelic, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's psychedelic. But um, (laughs) I'm going to take it off of me. But what I was going to say was I'm working in a city where there's a lot of there's a big war around this stuff happening. Right. And and going on around ed reform or whatever you want to call it. And there's it seems like even in the ed reform side of things, there's two camps. There's a camp of people that can opt in and out and like are somewhat in hiding, right? In like ed reform hiding. So they'll raise their hand when they say where the teacher's at in the room, right? But if they work at a charter school or something like that, right? Like they, they're kind of quiet and sheepish. And then there are some people that can't opt out of this movement, right? Like whether they might have more money now or got access to good schools or whatever, they are still tethered to the poor education that's here in some type of way. What is, how do you, what advice do you have for folks like me that's working in a place like Oakland that's trying to really rally folks around making sure that black and brown kids got the educational education they deserve and need? You know what? I don't, I, I don't hesitate to give people advice like you who are working on the ground. But the one thing that has served me well and continues to serve me well is I try to take everything back to why am I doing this? I mean, what is what is the purpose of, of, of why I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. And that really helps me because I know that I'm doing this because I believe that black children, poor black children, 
must have an education. But it's clear to me that that's not a systemic a systemic reform effort. In other words, I view education as like a rescue mission. And what I'm trying to do is rescue as many kids as I can on a given day to try to give them some kind of chance to have a decent life. Mm-hmm. But I don't view that as I'm really engaged in systemic reform. And because I always try to put their needs and their interests first, the question of what battles am I going to get engaged in and which ones am I not, I try to have it guided by that. And so what I would say to you, Charles, is that you know the situation in Oakland. I don't I don't know anything about the current situation in Oakland. Mm-hmm. You know that situation better than, I, than any of us on this, this podcast. And so I would al- always come back to you and say, well, as you look at the situation, how do you read it? In other words, who, who do you see out there that's really willing to fight for our children? And if they are, what form is it taking or, or, or how are they willing to do that? And it's based on you looking at that in a very real way that you got to determine where you spend your time. Because all of us on this call know you can spend an inordinate amount of time with people, number one, who can't bust a grape. Number two, don't care really about what it is you're talking about. And that what they're really trying to protect more than anything else is their jobs. And you're not even necessarily mad at them because you don't want people not to have jobs. But but at the same time, it's, it's like just understanding where different people are. And then you're trying to choose who you're going to work with based on that objective of trying to ensure that our kids get the best education possible. Mm. Speaking of grapes, I have a question. <laughs> so, so, so Diane Ravage in her latest uh, blog post, she asserts that charter school, the charter school injury industry, is not based on a grassroots movement. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I never read anything Diane has to say. I don't. Yes, yes. I, I just. I don't. You know, I don't inflict unnecessary pain on myself <laughs> on a given day. I have enough legitimate pain <laughs> without going out and finding something to bring to it, like Diane Ravage. <laughs> but 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 that statement by her, it, it's, it's essentially ignorant in a certain sense. And this is what I mean. If you go back and understand how did the charter school movement, if it's a movement, how did it actually start? Diane Ravage knows, for example, that Shanker gave a speech that got published in the New York Times. He was the head of AFT, actually talking about charter schools. And there was a man in Boston years before that, his name was Bud, I think it's B-U-D-D-E, who had really come up with the concept of charter schools that Shanker kind of latched onto. And then when Ted Caldery and those folks invited him to come to Minnesota, they then had this whole discussion that led to Ember, Joe Nathan, Ted Coldrew, I'm not sure all of who was around that table writing on a napkin, that led to the charter school law being passed in Minnesota. Once the charter school law was passed in Minnesota, a number of us became involved because we saw that as a way to have an option that's a public option other than traditional public schools. But what you brothers need to know is that some of the reasons why people went towards charter schools was because there was a grassroots movement that led to the voucher program happening in Milwaukee. And so for a lot of people, there was a fear 
that, oh my God, they got vouchers. We got to come up with something that is public, but at the same time gives people options. So the reality of it is the movement to get the voucher bill passed in Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, was a grassroots movement from the very beginning, led by a courageous sister named Polly Williams, who had the courage back in 1987-88, man, as a black Democrat, to stand up and say, I support vouchers for poor black people. So she was a state le- in the state legislature? Yes, she was a she was a state rep, Annette Polly Williams. So what, what happened, Sharif, is that it is, I don't want to go too far on this, but we, we were involved with trying to, to ensure that poor black kids get an education. We first tried to create our own district. We, we wanted to carve my high school, two middle schools, and 10 elementary schools in what was called the North Division cluster out of the Milwaukee public school system. We wanted to secede from the Milwaukee public school system and create our own district. Derrick Bell came to Milwaukee to argue the constitutionality of what we were doing. And we actually got a bill passed through the assembly that Polly uh, presented to create a separate district. It was killed in the Senate. I think it passed the assembly because they knew they were going to kill it in the Senate. Mm-hmm. So when we, when we couldn't get our own district, we couldn't get MPS to educate our kids, then it was logical for us to say, give us a way out. And so therefore, that's how we came to support vouchers. It wasn't like we were sitting in the basement reading Milton Friedman, Capitalism and Freedom, and oh, no, we support support vouchers. I didn't even know, I didn't know anything about the book <laughs> when, when we started fighting for vouchers. So what I'm trying to do to answer the race question is to say that the movement that led to vouchers was clearly a grassroots movement led by black people in this city, parents, activists, clergy, a whole coalition of black people. Mm-hmm. Once the charter bill passed, where, where Diane is, is, is way off the mark, is once the bill passed, and then it began to get passed in other states, as it started to happen, there were grassroots efforts to create schools. And, 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 and what I've said, and you all have heard me say it before, the mistake that we've made is, and, and, and I know how this happened because I was in the meeting when decisions were made, the movement to networks, this whole idea of scale, this whole idea of CMOs and EMOs and all of that, that was the point in time where we moved away from an emphasis on what this movement was supposed to be all about. And that is people in communities coming together to create schools for the children in their communities. And, and the fundamental mistake that this movement has made was to move away from that really deep grassroots efforts of people who just wanted to create one great school in their communities. They didn't want to create 50 schools. They didn't want to. So, so and, and if you go back and look at it, the largest number of kids, I believe, in charter schools are still in those single site schools mm-hmm. that were created in various communities to support those communities. So I, I guess the way I'm responding to her is that it is inaccurate to say that there was no grassroots element to the extent that we could define what grassroots is, that there's no grassroots element to development of charter schools. But my advice to everybody is that if you got, if you have a lot of time on your hand, 
to waste it listening to a Diane Ravage is an unfortunate use of your time. <laughs> yeah, the, the the work that you described in in Milwaukee of you know basically seceding from uh, the district reminds me of uh, the speech Malcolm X gave when he was announcing the Organization for African American Unity, where he also demanded that New York City just turn over a bunch of schools. He's like, y'all can't educate black kids. It's obvious. It's been going on for generate. He gave that speech in the '60s. He might as well have been giving it, you know, in 2019. Yeah, but you know, like if you go back and remember the uh, effort in uh, in New York to gain community control of schools. I mean, again, that's what I meant when I said if you go back and look at history, there's there's so many different similarities to to battles that we have fought. But again, I have to stress under different historical conditions, and that means everything. Right, mm-hmm. right. You you brought up uh, you know Derek Bell, you know one of the you know what a person largely considered, you know, the uh, really kind of crystallized this idea of, you know, critical race theory. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and today you hear a lot of folks who claim to be critical race theorists and kind of, and don't bring up the fact that he supported parental choice. He supported independent black schools. He supported charter schools and it, by any means necessary to educate the black child. And so it's interesting now you you hear folks who are like, oh, I'm a critical race theorist and that's what I study. Like, well, sis, you must have, it must be like the lost chapter, like one of those old Chinese movies, you know, the lost, uh, you know, part of the book because you haven't read everything. And I, I don't know why you're so selective. So, sir, before you, before Dr. Fuller, before you answer this question, you said, sis, are you referring to someone? Because. No, I'm just saying everybody. I'm just talking. You're not, you know, you're not talking chapter. about, you're not, so you're not talking about Gloria. Oh my goodness! So, Doctor no. Fuller, um, what? We, sorry, brother. Let, let me let us explain what happens here. So, Ray is what we call uh, the person who likes uh, less smoke. So, with less smoke, what he will do is just drop names because he's an instigator. But uh, I think Sharif asked you an amazing question, brother. Go go ahead and tap into that question. Well, first of all, that Gloria name that he dropped. I, if, if it's the glory that I know, I actually know her and I like her. <laughs> but we, we can get into that. Cause, but I listen to your podcast. So I know what role Ray plays at all. <laughs> and, I, and I told Ray before. And, and, and the important thing is I'm good with it. Because I think that's coming. First of all, anybody that, the Overbrook High School, like Gloria Lasso, like West Philly folks, they off limits, bro. All right? So GLB alone. If you talk about Overbrook, then you got to talk about Will. You know, exactly, it's really exactly. interesting to see Will in high school dribbling behind his back, shooting jumpers from the top of the key. But that's another podcast. Seven footer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, again, I, I just want to go back to um, something that you said, Shrek, that I, that I want, want people to sort of grasp, right? In the, in, in this sense, um, so I, I would, you know, one of the books I read was uh, <clears throat> um, th- th- this book about black teachers talk about teaching. I think Michelle Foster wrote that book. And what she what she did was she went back and she interviewed what she called, I think she called them elders, and then there were veterans, and then there were novices, right? And, and I think she actually interviewed a woman who had been teaching for 49 or 50 years or more in South Carolina. I always get the number of years, but it was it was over 40. And she was talking about how these teachers, whether they were elders or veterans or novices, were talking about what happened when integration came. And what happened when integration came, or segregation, desegregation, however you want to term it, 
black schools were closed, black teachers lost their jobs, and black teachers' opinions were devalued. If you ask what happened when ed reform came, black schools were closed, black teachers lost their jobs, black teachers' opinions were devalued. And so one of the things we've got to understand is that no matter what kind of change comes down the pike, for some reason and in some way, black people always are, <laughs> are, are, take the brunt of that change. So for example, this woman, Kamala Harris or something, uh, I shouldn't say something, that's disrespectful. Kamala Harris, who is running for president of the United States, when she went after Biden, with that busing thing, and he was so weak. It, 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 was, it was really sad. But her raising busing in the way that she did it, like, showed a disrespect to Black people and to, like, the history of what busing has done to Black people. And so she's coming to a city, for example, for their big convention when they announce who's going to run against Trump. And she's coming to a city where busing was used in a way to benefit white people, even as they were telling us it was the best thing in the world for me. I got documents I'm going to send you all mm. where after 20 years of all of this happening, the white people who were the architect of this came out and just said, we constructed this whole busing program. I think I showed it to you. We constructed yeah, yeah, this whole program for the benefit of white people. Yeah. So, so my point is, even something that was supposed to help us can be turned on its head and used against us, which is why we have to be vigilant about any change that comes down the pipe, because it can always be used against us. Mm. Absolutely. That vigilance and, and just understanding the deeper and as well as the history, because, you know, yeah. a lot of this stuff repeats and it just yeah. morphs into something else. And you think it's nebulous, you think it's, you know, benign and and then boom, here it is. Just another layer of you know racist oppression. I, I have something I want to add in there, uh, Sharif and, and, and Dr. Fuller and Ray. It, it's one of the things, man, where we talk about the people that need to be at the top of this movement. Right. And so they try to jam this side up all the time and they'll say, Oh, look at this school. This, this, this charter school is private and it's, and it's doing this and it's proprietary and all this, and it's not democratic. Right. And I, and I just, I don't, I can somebody help me understand when democracy became our saving grace. I, my understanding as a history, as a student of history is that, I was a slave under democracy, right? Like when we were working on that piece, I just, I just feel like there are these lines that I see rich white women come down the hill into school board meetings and drop like bombs, and they'll drop terms like uh, neoliberalism or this, this isn't democratic or you know community-run schools. When I see like, and I'm saying this to somebody again, never went to a charter school, never worked at one, but I know that they come up for renewal every five years. I know that they can get shut down at any time. And there are some schools that's been our traditional system for a long, long time. I went to the same elementary 
elementary school was Huey P. Newton. And even in the, the first page of his book, the seminal book of one of the most revolutionary people of our time, he talks about how bad the Oakland schools are, right? So, I mean, how do we, what do you say to folks when, when they have like this, like this field of distortion in between this education conversation and the reality of what's happening to black people? Well, to me, what you always do is you speak truth to the people. <laughs> the reality of it is whether they're going to listen to you or not, you speak truth to the people. And, and, and I tell these people in the charter spaces, as we call it, that you all over here reading Stephen Brill, thinking you really like getting fired up for struggle. Your opponents are reading Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky in Rules for Radicals said that one of the first things you have to do you have to really decide what it is you want to do and then clothe it in moral garments. Because if I can clothe what I want to do in moral garments, the flip thing happens is I'm clothing you in immoral garments. And so what the opponents have done in the way that you just described it, Charles, is to, is to paint a scenario that makes those of us who are fighting for our parents to have choice seems like that's an immoral choice. And they try to take the high ground by saying we are the moralists because we stand for public education. And one of many mistakes that we make is to allow people to equate public education and the system that delivers it, because those are really two different things. Public education is an idea. The system that's supposed to deliver on the idea was not created by God. It was created by human beings. And so therefore, you can change it. You can come up with different ways to deliver on the promise of public education. So I believe all of the work that those of us who are on this podcast are doing, it is a struggle to make sure that our kids are educated. So in essence, we are fighting for public education. We just know that if there's only one way for our people to get anything, we're in trouble. It's, it's always in our best interest in this country to have more than one option to try to achieve a purpose. And so in my way of looking at it, all you can do is come at that and not let people define you and not let people put you on the defensive. Because that's one of the one of the things that happens to us, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. because we're, we're not knowledgeable enough about our own history to refute ignorance. And so when you let people just define you, oh, you're a, you know, you're a segregationist. You are, a, you know, like you are a tool of billionaires. I mean, I've been called all of that. Hey, just think about this one more. <laughs> I've been called a revolutionary, a counter-revolutionary, uh, an Uncle Tom, a militant, a, uh, a tool of billionaires, and you go on down the list. I ask you brothers to explain to me how one lone black man can be all of that. <laughs> and the only way you can get to be all of that is to not allow these people to define you yeah. or, or, or to say what you are or what you are not. Yeah, I think, I think this whole idea, this whole thread of education is goes back to defining ourselves defining how we want to be educated how we want our children to be educated and not being defined by others you know um i mean leron bennett in book making a black american uh said education is a political question mm -hmm. he or she who controls minds has little or nothing to fear from bodies 
So, so the reality of it is that I hear people say, oh, you know, we got to take the education, we got to take the politics out of education. That's a ridiculous assertion. There is no such thing. Absolutely. The very nature of education is political. So yeah. that any struggle over education is by definition a political act. Yes. And to talk about we need to take politics out of education is simplistic and inane, you know, when you look at it. Yeah. Even even at the school level, classroom level, I, that's what I would share with our teachers. Like every time you're planning a lesson, it's a political document because your mindset about black children in our school at Shoemaker, Mastery Charter Schools, like it is, it's a political document. Every time you deliver that lesson, it's a political act because you're deciding how you feel and it's manifesting. That lesson is manifesting your mindset, your will and your skill to teach black children. Mm-hmm. That's accurate. Ray, we want. I wanted to pull you in a little bit, Ray, uh, and check yeah, in. So your I'm just re- I'm reading questions off of Twitter. We have a question from Ed Inquiry, our guy Fly Ty at Ed Inquiry on Twitter. His question is, why are they? I guess he's meaning the power structure in education, keeping jobs from people of from people of color in education, are uh, not for profits are as bad as school districts, where are the jobs with power and influence is his question to Dr. Fuller. That, that, well, that's an excellent question. I mean, because at the base of what he's saying is that, for example, different than Charles, who said, I've never been to charter school. You know, I just, you know, went to uh, the schools that he went to. I, I've done all of it in a certain sense in that uh, first through uh, eighth grade, I was in Catholic school. And I got kicked out because of behavior. They should have put me out. <laughs> and then I, I went to traditional public school, two, two different ones, and graduated from traditional public school. I went to a private college where I integrated the college by myself. I've been the superintendent of a large public school district, and I've helped start a private school, and I've helped start a charter school. So what I'm, what, what, the, the, the reason why I'm saying all of that is, at every step of the way, I recognize that not only are educational institutions about education, they're also economic institutions. They provide jobs. And that if you read like The Color of School Reform by Jeffrey Hennedy, where they, what, where they try to explain why is it that particularly the black middle class is so opposed to things like charter schools and things like that is because they see these things as a threat to quote black economic development because school districts have for a lot of black people been the entree to the middle class. And so when you begin to attack these school districts, you're not just attacking quote education, you're, you're, you're attacking people's economic wherewithal. But the question that he's raising, I thought, or whoever raised it, is this notion that, yeah, that's all true. Well, how is it then that no matter what kind of structure comes up, why is it that black people are never afforded the opportunity to be employed in those entities at the most significant levels? And I think that that's a, you know, that that's a legitimate question. It's a, it's a corollary to the question of how is it that a movement that's supposed to, imp- that is, in fact, impacting black and brown children so deeply, how is it that the major institutions uh, leading that movement 
are not led by us? And that's the question every one of you on this, this podcast, along with me, has been raising for years. And, and, and so it's, 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 it's a fundamental weakness of this effort. And it's also, a, at this moment in time, a political liability. Absolutely, absolutely. You you gave uh, you gave recently gave uh, you were in Philadelphia and you gave us uh, a talk to the leaders at uh, Master Charter Schools, and you you raised that point of you know this idea that you know white folks uh, often have to get out of the way, um, and those in closest proximity give them you know allow them to exert their power and their influence on the issues, particularly when their schools are full of black and brown children. Um, do you, where do you see that happening well and how do we expand that, um, that effort? Well, I don't see it happening well anywhere. I mean, I don't, but, but you all know more about this. I mean, I don't, the places that I go into, you always see pockets or you see, let's say, let's take New Orleans, for example. I mean, I think it's critical that, you know, Jamar McNeely's, you know, inspire NOLA. Right, it is an effort to put together a, a, a charter management organization. Algiers is also run by black people. But the critical thing for me is the survival of single site charter schools led by black people. Because I, because I think the mistake that we're making, and, and I've, I've said this earlier, is just forcing people to go into networks in order to survive. And I think that that's taken the soul out of the this whole effort, but it's all, and I, but I understand why it's happening because it's based on the notion that unless you get larger, you're, you're going to be irrelevant in a political sense. And the way to get larger is by creating these networks and, you know, CMOs and so forth. Mm-hmm. I think the way to get larger is to create a whole bunch of single site uh, uh, schools that are led by people who live in those communities because they're going to be fierce in protecting uh, uh, those kids, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not anymore just about protecting jobs. It's really about a protecting the institutional arrangement that's educating our children. That's a different way to go to battle. You know, if you're just going to battle because I got to, you know, <laughs> protect this new thing that I created versus I'm going to battle because I got to protect these kids. I got to protect our community because our community has the right to have institutions. I think you, you have a whole different mindset when you, you know, when you go into battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I hear you. I'm, I uh, guess I'm wrestling ahead, with the right idea, now. like, you know, the single site sometimes needs support that back engine. Um, and when they're by themselves, as soon as they're, they're very sensitive to any, you know, a state budget cut, you know, a huge budget cut like we had under uh, that Joker, uh, Governor Corbett, when he cut a billion dollars out, you know, out of the state, like, you know, those single sites really suffered. Um, right. And then I think about the school that I attended, Nathamusasa. I'm like, man, if I could do a hundred Nathamusasas for the black children in America, like I would, you know, but I also hear you as far as like, you know, this, uh, you know, the need for the, the, the fire of that grassroots back activism that who started Nithamosasa as a single site, does that get watered down, you know, growing into this, you know, behemoth? No, I think that that's a valid pushback. And, 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 and I tell people all the time, you know, like people should always push back on me because I'm only saying what I believe, but what I believe. No, no, we appreciate it. No, no, no. But I think it's a good, no, but I think it is a good pushback because it's the other side of the argument, right? Mm-hmm. As, to, as, as to why you would, 
uh, create networks. I think the thing that we need to think about is would there be a way to, 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 to bring assistance to those individual schools without them necessarily having to go into a network? Are there other kinds of organizational forms mm. that we could think about that would maintain that kind of independence that's needed in a certain way, right. but yet provide the advantages of being a part of a larger entity from a financial standpoint, and right. to a certain extent from a political standpoint? I think that those are, those, those are real legitimate questions. I'm just saying, I don't think we explored fully how to do that without creating these uh, uh, networks. Yeah, which mostly aren't led by black folks anyway. And that's why the work of the charter collaborative is so, um, so important. But even, but even, even on that point that you just made Sharif though, and like, and, and Dr. Floyd and I were talking about this off camera before the show started um, with some folks that he knew here in Oakland, Uh, the charter movement here in Oakland actually was started by like black folks (laughs) in West Oakland. And, uh, and I was talking to one of them just around that, right? And then, you know, one of the things that he was really clear on and, and was just honest on was, you know, they needed some more money and a big CMO type of company came through and offered them the money and they they opted to close the school, right? And I mean, it sounds like it was a really tough um, situation, but listening to what Dr. Fuller said, you know, I, I think that he would, they were thinking along those lines of, man, does this mean that if we take this money, do we lose control? Do we lose our Afrocentric school that we built to do X, Y, and Z? I, I mean, I just feel like that's a, a tough decision that like small single site schools have to make. Uh, but I think it's a conversation that needs to keep going. R- real quick, uh, Dr. Steve Perry, friend of the show, friend of Dr. Fuller, uh, saw that you was going to be on the episode, Dr. Fuller, and had a question for you. Um, he wants to know, how do you stay so laser focused despite cowardice friends and determined enemies? Those are all his words. <laughs> you know, Steve is my man. Yeah, uh, we need him on the show soon. Steve. Steve doesn't know how to not say real words. You know what I mean? <laughs> he hasn't learned how to be politically correct. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, this, this is where I am, man. Like, I get up every day and I understand that I'm really blessed to be able to get up every day. I'm I'm blessed to be able to have been in this for as long as I've been in it. And, And because I'm blessed in that way, I have this deep responsibility to stay focused on fighting for our kids. When I look at our school, right, and, and, and our school means everything to me. Um, and, 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 and going to that school, as I know Steve goes into his schools, I'm really working with these kids and seeing these kids and understanding what it is these kids are going through. That's what keeps me going, right? Because I know how beautiful they are, but I also know how fragile their lives are because of the conditions that we have allowed to happen for them, right? It, 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 it means like, I, and you have heard me say this, you know, like I think about February 1st, 1960, right? Four students sit down at a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, demand to be served, right? Help change the course of history. In 2019, four black students sit down at a lunch counter where they're welcome and can't read the menu. At some point, we have to take responsibility for that happening. And when we take responsibility, then it means we have to fight to change it. And so for me, 
I just try to tune out as much of the background noise as I can to stay focused on how can I use whatever talents, resources, energy, whatever it is that I have to try to make a difference for these kids that are dependent on me. You know what I mean? They're not, they don't get up every day thinking about Diane Ravitch. <laughs> you know, they don't, you know, they get up every day trying to figure out how they're going to eat, you know, what, what, what they're going to wear, how do they come through their communities, some of them it, it, it very dangerously, get to a school, and, and how do they ultimately gain enough so that they got some kind of chance of developing a decent life? And to me, as, as long as I stay focused on that, all of the blows that come, and like all of us, there are bad days, man. And there are days when you're like, oh my God, oh my God. But for me, it's like, it's clear to me why I am on this earth at this moment. Like what my mission is. And you all have heard me say this before, but Franz Fanon in Wretched of the Earth said every generation out of relative obscurity must discover its mission and either fulfill it or betray it. I believe deeply in that, right? And that I, my mission for as long as I'm walking this earth is to fight for the freedom of a people who were liberated but never freed. And, and for me, the vehicle that I'm using at this moment in time is education. Yeah, wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me let one of you brothers jump in so I don't take up all the time. Yeah, no, no. Well, you know, one of the things, uh, Professor, Dr. Fuller, uh, <laughs> you, you know, what are, what are some of the, the materials that people that, who are in this work? Because you know, one of the things I just think, like, people, as you challenge people to re actually read Brown versus Board, there's some other books, you know, just, you know, I'll say a title and would like just, you know, to give kind of your take on it, you know. Um, so one, The Education of Blacks in the South. Yes. 1860-1935. Why is that relevant for the people, our peers, who are doing this work to uh, liberate black children? Anybody who cares about black education and you haven't read that book, I would urge you to do so. It, it's, it's really the seminal book on the history of black education. It's, it's, it's just the seminal book. Because Jim Anderson, I think it, it, it took Jim like 10 years to write that book. It's one of the most clearly researched and detailed books. It is the one that I've I've read that that taught me the most and can about you give, the can, struggle. Can you give that title again? Can you give the title and the author again? Yeah, it, for it's our listeners? Education of Blacks in the South. I think Sharice, I always get the dates, but it's 1865 by James Anderson. But then there are books like A Class of Our Own. Um, that that's that's really important in 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 that same realm. Um, Derek Bell's book, Silent Covenants, is critical for understanding the, the concept of interest convergence theory. His book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which is, which is a, a, a book about why it is that you have to, the first chapter, because it's not, it's not a, a linear book, it's a series of stories, including the, the one about the spacecraft that I think you can really use as a tool in classrooms. But that book, is, is like really, really important. And, and I would say, you know, obviously people talk about Coates' book, you know, Between the World and Me, which 
you all know, is a takeoff on James Baldwin's book, The Fire mm-hmm. Next Time. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Coates' book, Eight Years in Power, that, that essay that he does on Trump is the first white president, is really a critical essay, in part because he goes through and uses um, the data to show who actually voted for Trump. So people quit running around here saying Trump was elected by three out-of-work uh, people in West Virginia. Right. Uh, Trump won every segment of the white vote right. because the concern is that in 2044, when whites are supposed to become the minority mm-hmm. in this country, that's the fear that Trump has latched on to. And so his whole thing having to do with immigration and getting brown people out of here, black people out of here, then going to Norway and getting white people, that's just a clear assertion of what this is all about. So, I mean, I, th- I think that book is, is like really important. Um, you know, I, 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 I would tell anybody who actually wants to understand Brown that you, 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 you have to read Simple Justice. I mean, but it's, it's 789 pages, so it's, 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 it's a little bit of a challenge, right? But it, it's, it's an important book. So it's Patterson's book on Brown versus the Board of Education. I haven't read Ogletree's book yet, but I'm getting ready uh, to try to read it because I, I, I heard that it, 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 it would also be important. I actually think for classroom teachers, I, I don't know how Ray feels about this, but I, I think Lisa Delpin's book, Other People's Children, mm-hmm. is like a really important uh, book. Uh, but I also like Dream Keepers, right? And, and I'll tell you why, because I think Gloria like actually researched what are the characteristics that people have who become like really good teachers. But then there's a book like The End of Average is really important for us to understand because it gets into this whole notion of how we're trying, how we're uh, analyzing whether or not a school is a good school by having these test scores that are pegged to an average. And it, it, it starts out by talking about, for example, they were having these wrecks uh, planes were crashing. I think it was World War One or two, and they couldn't figure out what the problem was. Well, the problem was that they had built the cockpits by going out and measuring, like I forgot how many air airmen, you know, their fingers, their arm size, and all this. And they measured all of these people, and then they came up with the average, and then they built the cockpits based on that average. The problem was not one single person fit that average. <laughs> and so finally, that's when they decided you got to have seats that go back and forward, wheels that come up and down, because they realize that if you structure stuff based on the average, then you're going to miss it because nobody really fits the average. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's learning about you know, all of these things by reading different uh, books that come at it from, you know, all these these different perspectives, like New Power, for example, is an interesting book to read because it, it, it just talks about how power is exercised in, the day, in today's world, right? And the impact that one hashtag can have to bring down a powerful person that you thought couldn't be touched. Mm. So, you know... So real quick, real quick, just to clarify, um, Gloria Latson Billings is in chapter one of my dissertation. So I have no beef with her. <laughs> you better just not putting that out there. 
Yeah. Be, I'm baby. glad. That's a, that's a good thing. Because she's, she's, she's a good sister. But I, but I, she, she knows a lot. Well, I'm glad that you actually segued there, Ray, because um, this question kind of pertains to you and me as we're kind of in the worlds of academia. And my question for you, Dr. Fuller, um, and I know you've been a scholar for a long time, uh, and for a lot of folks that don't know, what I was thinking about um, going to pursue becoming a doctor, Dr. Fuller was one of the people I talked to him and his wife and uh, they were really gracious with their time. My question is, but I was one of the reasons I was skeptical, right? Is because, um, and, and a lot of it came true when I would be in sessions, like there would be full classes only on like neoliberalism, right? There'd be no like other, like <laughs> there, there'd be nothing kind of to this argument, right? So what you're having happen in up in, in higher education for masters and EDD and PhD education programs is, there is an REDD program. It's, it tends to be split up between K-12 and college. K-12 people tend to come in pretty passionate about K-12 stuff, obviously. And college people tend to kind of be like, we're going to take kids however they come. But what happened is in my cohort, they combined us. And you had these people who were kind of like um, neutral on the issue of ed reform or whatnot. I watched them be transformed, right, in my program because everything was kind of beating them down around like, this is neoliberalism. This is this. This is that. Um, we need to, you know, like a really pro-union kind of message. And I just wonder that, I mean, it was just really interesting to me. Like I got a B minus in a class. <laughs> you don't get B minuses in doctoral programs. But because I was kind of pushing back and saying, where's the other side of this argument? Or can we go deeper into Brown versus board? Or can you actually teach me from a place that's not a education program that's trained just to train white people to go and teach black and brown kids? But I mean, as somebody who's, and Ray is still in there and, and God bless him and he'll be out soon. But what advice do you have for those folks just around higher, like just the academy? Well, first of all, I don't like I don't consider myself like a scholar. Um, the reason why I got a Ph.D. man was because this dude in our community who had a doctor was on my case and he used to get up and, oh, I'm Dr. So-and-so. So I decided, man, I'm going to get a doctor, man, so I can shut this <laughs> nigga up. Man, so that I can. You know, when he he stands up, man, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm going to stand up and say, well, shit, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Now, what does that mean? So so when I was working on my doctorate, man, I decided I was trying to get a doctorate, man. I wasn't going to spend no time arguing with people about a whole bunch of stuff. I used to just sit there, man. Seriously, Joe. I I mean, because I said, look, I'm trying to get a PhD. Once I get my PhD, first of all, I'm going to use this, this effort to read stuff I want to read. I'm going to do research in ways that I would never have done if I had not pursued this PhD. Now, I'll read whatever it is that y'all tell me. I did get in one fight in, in a classes of education uh, uh, class that I had because I insisted that Du Bois uh, be added to the classics because they were giving me the classics with all these white people. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. There's some black people who are classical. And I used Du Bois as like my main argument on that. And I and I was able to win that argument, yeah. bring his works, you know, <laughs> into that class. But 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 otherwise, I just like tell me what I gotta do to get out of here. Because once I get out of here, I'm gonna use this PhD as a weapon. Right? I'm not I'm not gonna let y'all like get me all bothered by some of this insane stuff y'all talking about because I don't believe it you, and I'm listening so I'll know 
how to go at y'all later on. But I didn't spend a whole lot of time, honestly, I was like arguing in class because I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't going to go nowhere. So I just tried to keep my eyes on the prize, which was, let me get out of here with a PhD. Let me do my dissertation on something that matters to me. And let me do the research that I need that's going to help me much later on. But everybody has to approach it based on how they, you know, how they do stuff. Mm -hmm. But that was the way I did it. Ray, do you have any thoughts? I was going, yeah, I was kicking it to you, Ray. So I, 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 I don't want to talk about I, I don't want to talk about academia right now. I want to talk about so. so well, hold on, wait, before you well before you change the topic, then let me let me let me just because I, I just wanted to ask him um, just because I do think that that actually is an important part of this fight, right? I think there's people on the ground. I think that you need people that's teaching in these places and principals and school yeah. leaders and and I think that academia actually is a, a battleground as well. Um, yeah. I, don't just, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. So, I don't disagree with you either. So, I don't with that. The one, one thing I'm going to say to Rado is that, you know, like I was really toiling, man, on my dissertation and my, my chair gave me the best advice he ever gave, that anybody ever gave me or some of the best advice. He said, Howard, let me explain something to you, man. The best dissertation is one that's finished. And <laughs> fact, <laughs> you know, that's a fact. And, and, and so just, just, just finish this. You're going to do your best work after the dissertation. It, it, it's not important that your dissertation be the best dissertation that's ever been written. It is important that you finish it. Because when you finish it and defend it, then you get your PhD. And then once you get your PhD, then you can do the work you need to do and, and be able to say, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> you know why you're doing it. Yeah, definitely. Oh, go ahead, Ray. So, so I'm gonna take this this uh, this this conversation to Rhode Island, and so all of us on the podcast, we know Erica, Erica Sanzi from uh, from yeah. Rhode Island, and so so I want to talk about uh, the teachers union in Rhode Island and how uh, how can I phrase this? Um. It's okay for them to engage in things with their students, and and these folks are not saying anything about it. And and the big wigs on the union side, they are dry, high and dry in terms of like responding to this. I haven't heard anything from Wine Garden. I haven't heard anything from Diane Ra- Savage Ravage. Um, nothing. What are your thoughts? Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand what what you're talking about. Maybe you can explain it. So so r- Reef. I, no, just real quick. What what he's saying is in Rhode Island, they are there was there was legislation by the uh, for the for the teachers union there that they were going to prosecute uh, sexual assault by teachers to students, and somehow that didn't pass. And oh, yeah. what he's saying is he hasn't heard anything from like union leadership or anybody kind of speaking out about the atrocity that that was. Uh, you're probably not gonna hear anything, <laughs> like. Let me give you an example, man. Everybody got to be clear, man, who these people are and what they do, right? So when I became superintendent, man, like one of the cases is infamous. So here's what happened. A teacher saw two little black kids fighting. They were in, I think, the fourth grade. Broke up the fight, told one of the kids, go stand in this corner. I'm going to take this other kid down to the office, but if you move before I get back, something gonna happen to you. Well, of course the kid moved. So when this dude came back, he grabbed him by the, literally by the throat, man, dragged him down steps, 
put his head in a soil toilet. Deborah McGriff and Bob Peterkin, Bob Peterkin was the superintendent at that time. Debbie McGriff was the deputy. They fired the dude. When I came in as superintendent, they forced me not only to put him back in the same, in the same, back into the district, but back into the same school. The union argued that this was a great teacher who had a bad day. I'm saying to myself, if that had been my child, you would have had a bad day. And so you just need to be clear, man, that these folks are going to function in a way that's in their best interest. The, the best interest of children is not their primary concern. Their primary concern is protecting their members for two reasons. That's what they do. And the second, protecting them is how they make their money because it gives them dues. So we just, you know, we just got to be clear <laughs> what this is all about. And just remember, they're never going to say any of this. What are they going to do? They're going to go back to their patron saint, who I also like, Saul Alinsky, and cast whatever they have in moral terms. But when real stuff comes down the pipe like this, they're not going to say nothing, man. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't even be expecting them to say nothing. Because that's who they are. Mm-hmm. Ray, Ray, why don't we... Uh... Why don't we stick with you for your final thought, Ray, and then we'll go to Sharif, and we're going to give the final, final word to, to Dr. Fuller. So I feel, I feel like I'm at my favorite rapper's, like, I'm, I'm watching, like, my favorite rapper in concert live. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, I don't even know how I was able to get these questions out because, like, it's still this feeling of nostalgia. Dr. Fuller, um, his playlist is suspect, but, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm from the South, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right now, City Girls is in high rotation. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Uh, but, but beyond that, man, I'm just grateful to, to have the opportunity to chop it up with you, bro. Uh, I, I learned a lot, as always, when I'm in your presence, and, and I thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I would, I would just say, you know, uh, thanks again, and particularly for the list of books, you know, as a, uh, you know, as a reader and a former uh, teacher of, of literature and history. I just appreciate, you know, um, the assignments and, and the, our audience and our podcast uh, uh, team, like get those books and, and make sure you're reading them. I guess my final uh, piece besides, you know, just a, a genuine thank you is can you talk about this need for, um, you talk about more black led schools. Can you also talk about um, the need for more black teachers, particularly the ones with the right skills, will, and mindset around black children, about black children? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, Shreve, I wanted to, again, thank you for taking care of me. What was that last week? I forgot now when I was in Philly. Yeah, yeah a, I really uh, appreciate that. And I appreciate the work you're doing, too, with the uh, Institute and, uh, you know, reading the document that you sent me. Because what you're doing is that you're not just talking about this need to, to have more black teachers, you actually are trying to create an entity to try to uh, help make that happen. And and all I can do is applaud you because we do need, you know, more black teachers, brown teachers. We need more excellent teachers, frankly, yeah. Yeah. Of, of, of any color. But it's particularly important that we have more black teachers to, to uh, work with our children. And what I would say is that we've got to attack this not just 
by the traditional routes and not just by alternative certification programs, which, which should be a part of it. But we've also got to create ways where people can teach uh, uh, not on a full-time basis, but bring people into our schools who can teach various subjects. I mean, it's ludicrous that a chemist, for example, in some states could not teach chemistry to kids because he or she didn't take education courses or methods courses or whatever. And so the only way it seems to to me that we're going to get in the short term, particularly get more black people in front of our kids, is to be able to bring people in from our community who can who can teach our kids. Um, and they may not have all of the formal teaching credentials, but they could work under a master teacher. In other words, we could start using different methods to bring more people in to teach, but have them you know, working with uh, master teachers or, 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 or teachers who can give oversight uh, as they, you know, do their work. Otherwise, I just don't see how we're going to, you know, come up with enough people just given the math, right? Because you, you first have to start out with, well, how many kids, how many black kids graduate from high school? Mm-hmm. How many of them go on to college? How many of them complete college? And at the end of that, how many of them want to be teachers? When you when you when you look at it in that way, it's it's a hard pull, right? Because right now in America, if you include uh, associate degrees, only eleven percent of low-income first-generation students finish college after six years. So so. If, if we use the formal mechanisms that are in place as the way that we're going to go about getting more black teachers, we're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have to come up with a whole lot more creative ways like what you're doing in order to try to make this happen. Yeah, now that's, that's, that was great, man. I, th- I think my final thoughts and, uh, and just my general appreciation for Dr. Fuller and just being blessed to be a student of his and, and, and being able to learn from him and uh, just even when I don't have the thoughts or questions fully functioning, right? Like, it's just like emotion. He, he don't say move kid. Like he listens. Right. So thank you so much uh, to the folks that's listening, man. I think my final thoughts, even from listening to this piece and I say it all the time and I'm gonna say it again today, black people, you on your own. And I mean, I hope that we can all come together and, and actually be what we need to be. I hope that we can, you know, build better schools for you and change poverty and racism tomorrow. Uh, but that ain't going to happen. So it's like, what are we doing to make sure folks are going to be okay for tomorrow? And I just want you all to always be thinking about that. You know, we talked about schooling and all that stuff. I went to 11 elementary schools and my schooling, my schooling was, was jacked up. And I think when you black, you got to think about schooling and education as two different things. I was able to use my poor schooling and figure out how to navigate it to like open up other opportunities. But my education came from my church or elders in my community or my barbershop or whatever the case is. So for the folks that are listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, We're going to leave, like I said, the last word to Dr. Fuller. Um, But you know, I think that there was a lot of books listed. We will try to get those written down for you because Dr. Fuller homework. is the professor is, gave you homework. Do your dad homework? Yeah, but you got it. We got to get. We got to capture the books, man. It was a lot of books that got said fast. So we got to get well, that. Sharif, Sharif, Sharif is going to get all the book names for us, and we're going to make that happen and have a, a, a reading list. Um, but as always, man, thank you all for the support that y'all have given, and make sure uh, Dr. Fuller in your closeout to tell people where to find you on Twitter because Dr. Twitter, Dr. 
Dr. Fuller is an avid Twitter user. Um, uh, but uh, Dr. Fuller, can you do us the honors of taking us out? Real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick. God damn it, right? So shout out, shout out to Sharif because he co-produced the show. This is the first time that he has co-produced the show and he did an amazing job. So I don't want to go off air without giving this brother his props, Charles. That's what's Stop. up. Stop. I don't. I don't think Ray's ever thanked me for pu- publishing or producing any of our shows, and I do them all. But it's okay, most of them. Uh, Dr. Fuller, go go ahead, brother. Uh, in the words of, of a young man that I listen to all the time, that's what's up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to thank you all for uh, spending this time with me on a, a Sunday evening. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. And you know, I, I listen to your podcast and check it out, you know, whenever I can. So it's, it's a real honor. And it's particularly an honor because by being on here, I got us to eight hands. (laughs) (laughs) You know, two hands was missing. If I wasn't on here, it would have been six hands. So we got to the eight hands. And so that really makes me happy. And, uh, you know, I just want to wish you brothers, uh, uh, all of good luck and best wishes. Because, uh, you know, tomorrow's a new day. We've got to get up to fight, man. That's yeah. how I look at it. Every day is a new opportunity for us to fight for our people. Yeah. And we can't miss it. we got to go to it. And we got to get at it. Yes, sir. Man. Marching orders. Thank you so much. You all have been listening to the A Black Hands. It's been another just amazing episode. Uh, when you get a chance, please go and support uh, Dr. Howard Fuller. If you're not following him now, uh, you will right after this show. Just look down in the show notes and we will have his uh, Twitter account um, there for you to click it. And for the folks that joined live, thank you so much. We had a bunch of people kind of come in and out. There seems to be like 95 hearts here. There's a lot of folks that got to enjoy the show live. So uh, we will be around. And in the next few weeks, we will be doing another live show in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I think. Um, and if you want the A Black Hands to come to your town to do a show, hit us up. You can reach us here on Twitter, send us a message or a DM, and we can make that happen. Y'all have a good one. And uh, the A Black Hands will see you next time. Peace. Peace. You have been listening to the A Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.